Hello and welcome to The Chiefs on Monocle 24. I'm Tyler Brule. This special edition of The Big Interview chronicles the drivers of change from banking to aviation, media to public policy, and gets to the core of how we must adapt our business outlook and leadership models as we head into the next decade. Today, we're heading to New York, where the CEO and president of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband, joins us on a rare, quiet morning from his Manhattan home. Over the past 20 years, Miliband has become somewhat of a household name in the UK and also on the global stage. After serving as UK Foreign Secretary under Gordon Brown and running for the UK Labour Party leadership, he decided to leave the forefront of politics altogether. In 2013, he took the helm of the IRC and is currently tasked with directing the organization's valiant efforts to alleviate the impact of war on citizens in some 40 nations. In our conversation, we changed track from pandemic response to the glaring gaps in global leadership to ask where the power balance shifts next and why the EU has an opportunity to step up. Plus, as democratic norms recede and alternative facts gain currency, can we restore public trust in a meaningful way? Here's David Miliband. David, where do we start? We could go in many different directions, but I guess maybe a key area for us and certainly something which has evolved as a theme over the last two and a half months is is not so much pandemic focused directly, but one of, of leadership. And when you cast your eye, certainly maybe around your immediate neighborhood or at least the immediate region where you are and back over to this side of the Atlantic. What do you see today? I see a real struggle to come to terms with the multiple challenges of really difficult public policy problems and also sustaining public trust and engagement in solving those problems. I think that we know the leadership model for technocratic public policy solution. But so many problems today are not amenable to a simple technocratic solution on a piece of paper. They require behavior change. They require public engagement. They require above public trust. This has come home to me very strongly in the work that we do at the International Rescue Committee. We know when we're fighting Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo that the number one asset in fighting a pandemic is not a hospital, it's public trust. And of course, this isn't confined to the uh, COVID-19 issue. We know that the big challenges of, of the modern world from criminal justice to climate change are ones that require a coalition of government leadership, mass mobilization, and business and NGO innovation. And so I think that it's a moment of real change in the nature of leadership. And a lot of leaders are struggling It's striking to me that you've got some on the authoritarian side, both in democracies and autocratic countries, who want to say that authoritarians are better suited to the modern world. But actually, the pandemic shows that you've got autocratic countries that have done well, quote unquote, well, and countries that have done badly. You've got democratic countries that have done well, like Germany, consensus-based societies, South Korea, but other democratic countries have done badly, like the one that I'm living in. And Obviously, since I'm living in New York, you can't hear the helicopters now because it's nine o'clock in the morning, not eight o'clock at night. But that notion of leadership being about public trust and mobilization, not just about, quote unquote, the answer seems to me striking at the moment. David, in between all of this as well, is there a comms element which is missing? Because one thing which I've been struggling with is you look at the UK, you look at the United States, countries which are, are known for amazing media brands, homes to 
of course, some of the world's most important advertising and branding firms. And on both sides of the Atlantic as well, just getting the basic message across. Now, whether that has to appear on a poster, whether it pops up as as a web page, there's also been something missing there as well. And, I, and I'm just going back also to certainly from the IRC side. I mean, you see that also where the work of many organizations have been effective in developing regions all over the world is also getting the comms right at street level. And, and something's been lacking here as well. Is that because... There was no preparation, and let's let's not talk about the situation in the states at the moment. If we focus on just what we're living through in this COVID era right now, that somehow everyone was a little bit back-footed in terms of this was not in any type of, of brand or, or playbook in many capitals. I'm not sure about that. I mean, if you haven't got a plan, you can't communicate a plan. And it strikes me that the governments that have had the most difficulty communicating are those who don't know what they're trying to communicate or don't have a plan to communicate. So that's the first point. Secondly, I am struck that a lot of people have followed government instructions to stay at home. I mean, it's actually been remarkably compliant, the populations. And so I think one's got to to hold on to the idea that we've got a more informed public than ever before. We've got a more educated global public than ever before. We've got a more connected global public than ever before. Those are assets for governments until they get it wrong because the connectivity, the knowledge, the resources become are used to expose what the governments are, are getting wrong. I think there's one caveat that I need to put on what I've said, which really troubles me and which I, I don't know enough about. And that is that I don't like to call it fake news, but alternative facts and the capacity of alternative facts to gain currency, not just in micro-communities, but in large communities, that is not just an American phenomenon. It's not just a British phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. We see that in far corners of the world when we're trying, when our local, credible, trusted, trusting health workers are trying to explain what COVID is. And so there's an additional dimension, which is to what I've said, it's not just that governments need to know what they want to communicate. There's people and organizations from inside the country and outside running interference. And that is a real threat, I think, to democratic life, which depends on an argument, not about facts, but about opinions and judgments. And so as well as, uh, I think that's an additional dimension that one has to recognize. But my bigger point, though, is that I think the governments that haven't known what they're doing have been found out. But governments that do know what they're doing and are ready to explain to their populations what they know and what they don't know have actually prospered. I want to come back to those governments in a moment, but you raise such an interesting point about the situation that we sit in the moment, where, of course, you know, yeah, call it fake news, uh, disinformation, and, and the actors who are spreading it. Whose responsibility is it? I mean, or, or at least who needs to mobilize? Is this up to... Are we really talking about security services? Is it up to foreign ministries who need to be on the front foot? Is it up to NGOs to take this position? Or does everyone have to be working in concert right now? Because as you said, this is, in a way, it's its own public health problem. Well, General de Gaulle said that wars are too important to be left to generals. And on that basis, the answer to your question must be, it's for everyone. I mean, it's certainly you can't just leave it to the security services, although they're important. You can't just leave it to the foreign office. I don't think you can slough off responsibility in the private sector as well. 
And for us as citizens, we have a role to play too. Now, that's that's a, a bit of a non-answer. I, I don't feel satisfied with that answer because if something which is everyone's responsibility ends up being no one's responsibility. But I don't think this can be pigeonholed. I think it's big enough to be really, it's a whole of society question. And societies that have sustained high levels of social trust, you can think about uh, Germany, you can think about New Zealand in the Western world, through this crisis, I think have probably a lot to teach. I mean, interestingly enough, in I think 2017, 2018, before the German election, the German equivalent of the FBI, the head of the FBI, warned his fellow citizens about foreign powers targeting their brains in the run of the election campaign nine months in advance and announced a national mobilization. Now, that did not contain a real drive in the last 10 days to two weeks of the German election campaign to drive support to the AFD, which came, according to all the reports, significantly from outside as well as inside the country. I think this is a whole of society move. And remember the context for this, if, you, if I can just give, give me a minute on this, I think this is important. The context is one not where liberal democratic values are on the advance, they're in retreat. 113 countries have seen reductions in political freedom over the last 13 years. That means less free press, less independent judiciary, less fair elections. 113 countries, majority of countries in the world. And countries like the UK or US, they still rank in the sort of 90th percentile plus in the Freedom House surveys. But the context for the question that you're asking is one in which there is, quote unquote, democratic recession. Jared Diamond has talked about that. And so I think this is a whole of society. I say, look, social Democrats like me have to be interested in liberal democracy. We were taught at university that great waves of reform brought political rights, social rights, and now there was a fight for economic rights. The political rights can't be taken for granted. We have to refight those battles. Let's not have a situation where someone leaves this interview, David, scratching their head because you say we can't sort of quite identify and put our, our fingers on who should take the leadership position. You know, we've seen, of course, state broadcasters funding is cut. We've certainly seen leadership attacking them, and of course, uh, we're talking about very, you know, very upstanding uh, broadcasters around the world. But is it a role of of the CBC, the ABC in Australia, the BBC, ARD in Germany? You know, is, is that a lead point because you? also need some type of, of collectivism as well. You probably need a shared understanding and, and policy. And I'm not saying that maybe state broadcasters are, are the one that can do it, but it has to start somewhere. Does, does David Miliband have maybe a view as to who he would like to convene around a table and say, guys, we need to do something? If you confine yourself to the state broadcasters, you, you've lost before you start. I mean, of, of course, there's an important role for them, but I mean, we're in a whole new world where everyone's a journalist because they can blog or blog or get out there. And so it's a much bigger conversation than that. We know, look, there are private institutions like the New York Times, which are standard setters. There are state-run institutions that are standard setters. And as you can see in the Twitter-Facebook standoff at the moment, there are different views about what the, the, the rights and responsibilities are of different private sector actors. So I don't think that the convening, the, the conversation is happening. And it started way beyond the traditional, quote unquote, broadcasters. I mean, what I know, you know, I run an NGO which works with people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. A good deal of that conflict is fueled by hate. Some of that hate is face to face. Some of that hate is generated locally, but some of it's generated on social media as well. And so 
this is a global challenge, really. I don't want to. I don't think we should we should duck that. And I think it would be it would be glib to pretend I've got the quote unquote answer. If you look back to this side of the, the Atlantic and the European project, what has to happen right now? And does does Europe have a role, David, within this? And I'm talking about the EU as we know it today. Or is there another actor uh, who who can step in at this moment? Or or do we do we leave it just to the US and, and China to get on with things? Well, you make that question too easy. I mean. Obviously, the answer is you can't leave it to the US and China, not least because they're in a negative sum game. I mean, this crisis has been bad for the US's global power. And I, I would argue it's not been good. It's been bad for China's global soft power as well. Let's think about the EU. The EU has no public health responsibilities at the level of the 27, but it does have massive economic, social, environmental power and and. I think in that respect, Europe made a slow start, the EU made a slow start. But I am fundamentally encouraged by the way France and Germany are now leading a drive to recognize that there needs to be a pan-European response to this crisis, a pan-European response that says, we're not just building back, because building back it would return us to various aspects of a normal that wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't satisfactory in terms of its prosperity, its inequality, its insecurity, its sustainability. And so I think that what you've seen with the latest economic forays by the two governments and then by the European Commission sort of uh, raising the stakes on the fiscal policy side, I think has both a substantive element of importance, but also a symbolic one. I mean, it is very striking to anyone who thinks that medium-sized European countries need to band together to face the challenges of the 21st century to see 50% of Italians no longer believing in the European project. I think that the substantive and symbolic steps that have been taken over the last two weeks, three weeks, uh, speak to the gravity of that situation. Now, Europe has to look after its own house. It has to look after its own house economically and build anew It has to look after its own house socially because the holes in the European safety net, which are smaller than America, but not non-existent, need to be filled. But I also think, to your point, in some ways, one of the most interesting questions is whether Europe can insert itself into the global equation. You said, should we just leave it to a G2 of the US and China? I think that would be uh, folly. The harder question, I think, is how can the EU insert itself into the global equation. Let me just give you one example. It's patently obvious from the COVID crisis that we need a better, different, stronger, more independent, better funded, more transparent global health infrastructure led by the World Health Organization, but not confined to them. Now, in that space, there is the room for Europe to be a really major player. Actually, America's withdrawal from the World Health Organization, which will actually have perverse effects in in reinforcing Chinese influence rather than undermining it. Actually, it doubles the importance of Europe playing a role, but it's not just about the WHO. And I have this view that if the global health is the arena in which an effective form of global cooperation could make sense to citizens, where notions of national sovereignty are clearly inadequate for a connected world to tackle global pandemics, And there is a chance that the health agenda could be one where global cooperation is organized in a way that's actually fit for the 21st century, that is genuinely international, that is public and private together, 
And Europe has a role in that. And I think if it can play that role, it started on the vaccines front with the major commitments it's made to, to Gavi, the Global Alliance on Vaccines, which itself is a, a sort of hybrid institution. It, it's part governmental, but it's part private sector. And so I'm more encouraged than I would have been three weeks ago if we'd been doing this interview about the significance of Europe. Obviously, I'm um, appalled and depressed that the UK is no longer part of that. But I'm afraid it's going to become a colder climate for the UK outside the EU, because I think the EU will net-net prove itself valuable in this crisis. And if you look at a stage for the EU to start performing, to, to insert itself more, do we look south? I mean, certainly where the International Rescue Committee is, is, is functioning as well. Is Africa a place? Because look, at if you look at the Germans, the Germans are spending a lot of money on education. Okay, is that a foil in some Afri African countries against China? Obviously, we see France still very involved within its, its former territories. It seems that there's been this huge discussion as well about this global rethink of, of the supply chain, etc. Why are we having to bring things from the far side of the planet? And many are saying this is also an Africa moment, not just in terms of direct aid, but also in terms of building up manufacturing infrastructure as well. Do you see, you know, that is that also the opportunity for the EU to maybe be functioning there in a slightly different way rather than maybe the traditional means of, of support, but also big investment that things that have been formerly done in Vietnam and China and, and elsewhere in Asia actually start to move to the continent across the Med? That's interesting. I mean, I think I want to reassert, look, the first responsibility of the European countries and the European Union is to weather the economic storm and build afresh because unemployment, poverty is going to grow in Europe and the need to get people back on their own feet is absolutely essential. So I don't want to, I don't want to lose that. But I do think that the vision that the European Commission enunciated before COVID that the European Union needs to be a stronger global actor is right. And I think you're right to say that it has to look south. I mean, I don't want to sound like the um, Cassandra here, but I am a massive supporter of more aid to countries in Africa, especially those who are torn by conflict, because that's where poverty is increasingly concentrated. Northeast Nigeria, South Sudan, these are countries where uh, the market, these are parts of countries or countries where the market economy is going to struggle because of conflict uh, dynamics that are really profound. Democratic Republic of Congo, um, another example, size of Western Europe. I mean, the scale is, is huge. So I'm a massive supporter of effective aid. I mean, we are, the International Rescue Committee is a partner of the European Union, so I'm obviously special pleading, but it's absolutely key on moral grounds and on strategic grounds, frankly, because the Chinese are there and the, in a connected world, it's a security concern and uh, et cetera. However, here's where Cassandra comes in. We shouldn't kid ourselves that an education program is going to resolve Europe's migration challenge. And all of the econometric evidence is that until countries have income of about $7,000 per person per year, emigration is the norm rather than, um, rather than not. And so I think that the migration crisis provides a, a sort of context for this, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that a development program is going to be the answer to Europe's migration issues, which the, the Commission rightly describes as both an opportunity and a challenge. I mean, that's a dipl diplomatic, if ever I heard it, it's, it, it's true. Now, the, the thing that's different here, and this is where I think there's a real change from 20 years ago or 15 years ago, when uh, there was a real drive to relieve debts, which remains important, but here's something that strikes me. There are 350 million people in Africa today who count as part of a global middle class. There is a major business community. There's a major philanthropic uh, community. 
And it's a different kind of partnership uh, today than the traditional aid partnership. And even in the way that you framed the question, I think there's a danger that we focus on the Africa struggling and we forget the Africa rising aspect of this. And I'm very struck how in this COVID crisis, when Western governments, I mean, they've been absolutely pathetic when it comes to giving out aid, just so you know. I mean, we, we as an organization, we've raised more from the American public than we have from the American government. Uh, unprecedented in um, the history of global emergencies. And globally, we've raised more money from the global public than we have from governments, which is absolutely absurd. Governments have become not just short-sighted, but myopic in neglecting the international front. But I think that in that context, I've seen a lot of people in business and foundations within Africa stepping up and saying, look, we've got to do this for ourselves, and there's actually some benefit for that. The truth is they need international help because of the refugee flows, because of a whole range of issues that overwhelm local systems. But I think there is a the EU of the future has to be a globally oriented EU, or it's going to shrivel. If we stay in Africa for a moment, then you're really talking about a multi-channel approach, because on one side, and I'm, sh I'm sure you're, you're happy that, that Berlin is doing it, and they want to encourage engineers, uh, you know, big projects in, in East Africa, a, a lot of Germany incorporated the Mittelstand, big corporates also, you know, supporting education there. And, and of course, on one side, I mean, we all know that maybe they want people flocking to Nairobi to, to be cynical about it. But at the same time, they know that obviously further down the track, does this mean that, of course, the likes of, of Bosch and Siemens and others can open factories there? Perhaps that's it. But are you also saying as well that we need, you know, more French troops, more German observers in Sahel as well, as much as traditional aid and, and, and? Well, that's a good point. I mean, look, there's a crisis of diplomacy at the moment. The fact that there are more refugees than at any time since 1945 is a function of a crisis of diplomacy, that you've got civil wars lasting longer and the tools of diplomacy not being used or not being adequate. And that starts with politics. I mean, conflict happens when people cannot express their political power or their, or their voice through, through political institutions, when the countries do not have institutions that are able to share political power and force political compromise. And the need for peacekeepers is a, is a, is a symptom of a problem. Now, peacekeeping doesn't work unless it has a political settlement to which it is driving. And so I think there is a much broader agenda, which goes beyond the, I mean, my own professional work is to say, there's life-saving that needs to be done now. There's investment in a, in, a, in a population, half of which is under the age of 18, amongst refugees and displaced people, who should be contributors for the next 60 or 70 years, not supplicants. But there is a much wider agenda beyond that. And that takes real, real thinking, because this is a toxic time. It's a time of nationalist politics. It's a time of xenophobic politics. But the truth is that the, the need for thinking beyond national borders is greater than ever. And I think it was brave what Mrs. Merkel said about that and right. If you talk about a crisis in diplomacy, is that about manpower? Because many would argue that, look, at you can get a wonderful gig in, in Ankara and maybe you can occupy a very nice you know, ambassador's residence in Tokyo. But it, it's 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 clear it's very it's very difficult when you see cutbacks at foreign ministries around the world, and then you've got the likes of big tech players, uh, big pharma players, uh, who could also offer you an interesting international platform. So, is part of the crisis of diplomacy as well just the fact that also you know, governments need to get in step in terms of also making these more attractive? And that means you know, if you're going to be representing a nation in Southeast Asia, then it needs to come with a salary to match. I don't think that's the biggest problem, honestly. Look, the biggest problem is that governments don't want to have a foreign policy. That's problem number one. 
Problem number two is that the tools of diplomacy were devised for resolving wars between states. And what we have today is wars within states. That's why we've got refugees. We've not got refugees because of wars between states. We've got refugees because there are, and internally displaced, 50 million internally displaced, 30 million refugees, because political systems aren't working internally. It's civil wars that are the driver. And so, sure, I, I, I bemoan and don't, you know, attack uh, cuts on diplomacy, but that's not the main, that's not the main issue. The, the main issue is one of the central standard bearers of the liberal international order are in retreat. That's the simple problem. And so you've got, a, you've got an unbalanced diplomacy or a vacuum of diplomacy. And whether you look at Syria or Afghanistan or elsewhere, you, you see the consequences of that. Sure. But I, I guess, you know, as, as we look down the track, and I've speak to, to many, many diplomats as well, and they are kind of sad when they look at the intake of talent in many countries, and I'm not just pointing to the UK, but I think diplomats in a number of places. And just wondering, is, is that a looming problem? Or if you look back to your foreign office days, you, you think that actually, no, there's plenty of great people out there, and they're, they're not going to sort of drift off anywhere else. Because I mean, you're talking about some big issues, and you need top talent at the table. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And, but there are good people out there. Remember, foreign offices like mine, like the one I was leading, we hire locally now, not just from our own country. But there is a lot of talent out there. But what, what diplomats want, in my experience, is they want, they, they, they want politicians who want to do diplomacy. They want leadership that offers real political engagement. And they want policy. And that, the, the biggest strain is going to be whether or not it's interesting enough to be a diplomat, not whether or not, I mean, the pay is important, but it's not the most important. And on the note of pay, you raised a very interesting point about your fundraising for the IRC that say, look at it just through, well, the private sector, that you've done much better in the United States than you have certainly with, with the government. I'm very interested, you know, when you look at corporate leadership around the world and trying to do what you're doing, David, do you feel that the outreach, the connection, and then obviously money in the coffers is... Yeah, doesn't matter what corner of the world you're talking to, there is an understanding at a corporate level much better than when you have to go to ministries or even maybe fellow NGOs who might support you as well. And I'm just wondering, if that, is that a very different pitch from, of course, the days you weren't raising money, but you were doing, in many ways, a very similar job when you, when you were sitting at, at the foreign office? I mean, I think it is different. Corporates are more powerful, but governments are still the agenda setters and they, they're the context setters. And they're in retreat. And so my pitch to the corporate sector is, look, corporate social results, let's work together because the governments aren't going to do it for us. We're very proud of some of our partnerships, but it would be completely wrong to say that we've yet taken it to scale. And there's a long way to go. There's lots of problems to solve. There's lots more brain sharing to be done. There's much more co-creation to be done. What we say is, let's work. Yes, the, the money is important, but let's share ideas too. And let's really try and redesign systems because at the moment they're broken. Just before we go, I'm not demanding that you pull out the crystal ball at, at this time of the morning yeah. in New York. If we look at how Europe emerges with this, and we'll throw London into the mix as well, but also I just wanted to come back to, to the States and maybe we, we can start there. Does Washington have the capacity to deal with still coming out of this pandemic? Obviously, what is, is going on in terms of you know a, a huge judicial race and also what becomes an economic issue already? How, how do you see this playing out? And I know that's a very big question to wrap up this program. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a resident in New York, but I'm a visitor to this country. I see a lot of us and them, and I don't see much us in the United States at the moment, especially this week, a traumatic week for the country. I think that international strength is built on domestic strength, and there is big work to be done. 
but I'm also struck by the cross-racial, multi-age sense that there's need for change here. And that gives me hope because in the end, America is the leader of the free world. It needs to really step up and it still has extraordinary capacity. And so for another podcast is how that happens and whether it's possible. My thanks to David Miliband for joining us on this week's episode of the Chiefs edition of The Big Interview here on Monocle 24. The Big Interview was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Jack Dewars. I'm Tyler Brule in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.